Live show, end of October. Dracula will be there. Will you? Dracula by Bram Stoker. Presented by the Oakville Players. Previously, Mina goes to a hospital in Budapest to reunite with Jonathan, who is convalescing after a terrible brain fever, has taken away his recent memories in Transylvania. They are married and Mina promises not to read his travel diary. Lucy's health deteriorates, and Dr. Seward cannot guess the cause, so he sends for his mentor, Professor Van Helsing, to offer a second opinion. Lucy has many blood transfusions, but remains fatally anemic. Misunderstandings and miscommunications ruin Lucy's chances of recovery, and a terrible home incursion turns fatal. And I am alone! Save for the sleeping servants who someone has drugged. Alone with the dead. I dare not go out. Episode 5. Much and Terrible Troubles. Letter from Mina Harker to Lucy Westenra, 17th September. My dearest Lucy, it seems an age since I heard from you, or indeed since I wrote. You will pardon me, I know, for all my faults, when you have read all my budget of news. Well, I got my husband back all right in Exeter. Mr. Hawkins welcomed us to his house, where there were rooms for us all nice and comfortable, and we dined together. My dears, I want to drink to your health and prosperity, and may every blessing attend you both. I know you both from children and have, with love and pride, seen you grow up. Now I want you to make your home here with me. In my will, I have left you everything. Oh, I cried, Lucy dear, as Jonathan and the old man clasped hands. Our evening was a very, very happy one. So here we are, installed in this beautiful old house, and from both my bedroom and the drawing room, I can see the great elms of the cathedral close. I am busy, I need not tell you, arranging things and housekeeping. Jonathan has been made partner. Mr. Hawkins wants to tell him all about the clients. How is your dear mother getting on? I wish I could run up to town for a day or two to see you, dear, but I dare not go yet with so much on my shoulders. And Jonathan wants looking after still. He was terribly weakened by the long illness. Even now, he sometimes starts out of his sleep in a sudden way and awakes all trembling until I can coax him back to his usual placidity. And now I have told you my news. Let me ask yours. When are you to be married and where and what are you to wear? Tell me all about it, dear. Tell me all about everything. For there is nothing which interests you which will not be dear to me. Jonathan asks me to send his respectful duty. But I do not think that is good enough from the junior partner of the important firm Hawkins & Harker. 
And so as you love me, and he loves me, and I love you with all the moods and tenses of the verb, I send you simply his love instead. Goodbye, my dearest Lucy, and all blessings on you. Yours, Mina Harker. Eighteenth September. The arrival of Van Helsing's telegram filled me with dismay. A whole night lost, and I know by bitter experience what may happen in a night. Surely there is some horrible doom hanging over us that every possible accident should thwart us in all we try to do. I shall take this cylinder with me, and then I can complete my entry on Lucy's phonograph. I drove at once to Hillingham and arrived early. I knocked gently and rang as quietly as possible. After a while, finding no response, I knocked and rang again. Still no answer. A terrible fear began to assail me. Was this desolation but another link in the chain of doom which seemed drawing tight around us? Was it indeed a house of death to which I had come too late? I knew that minutes, even seconds of delay, might mean hours of danger to Lucy if she had had again one of those frightful relapses. I heard the rapid pit-pat of a swiftly driven horse's feet. I met Van Helsing running up the avenue. How is she? Are we too late? Did you not get my telegram? I answered as quickly and coherently as I could that I had only got his telegram early in the morning and had not lost a minute in coming here, and that I could not make anyone in the house hear me. Then I fear we are too late. Come, if there be no way open to get in, we must make one. Time is all in all to us now. We went round to the back of the house, where there was a kitchen window. The professor took a small surgical saw from his case and, handing it to me, pointed to the iron bars which guarded the window. I attacked them at once, and had very soon cut through three of them. Then, with a long, thin knife, we pushed back the fastening of the sashes and opened the window. I helped the professor in and followed him. There was no one in the kitchen or in the servants' rooms. In the dining room, dimly lit by rays of light through the shutters, found four servant women lying on the floor. There was no need to think them dead, for their stertorous breathing and the acrid smell of laudanum in the room left no doubt as to their condition. We can attend to them later. We ascended to Lucy's room. For an instant or two we paused at the door to listen, but there was no sound that we could hear. With white faces and trembling hands, we opened the door gently and entered the room. How shall I describe what we saw? On the bed lay two women, Lucy and her mother. The latter lay farthest in, and she was covered with her white sheet, the edge of which had been blown back by the draught through the broken window, showing the drawn, white face with a look of terror fixed upon it. By her side lay Lucy, with face white and still more drawn. The flowers which had been round her neck we found upon her mother's bosom, and her throat was bare, showing the two little wounds which we had noticed before, but looking horribly white and mangled. Without a word, the professor bent over the bed, his head almost touching poor Lucy's breast. It is not yet too late! Quick, quick, go wake the maids! Frick them in the face of that tower! Make them get heat and fire and the warm bath! This poor soul is nearly as cold as that beside her. She will need to be heated before we can do anything more. I went at once and found little difficulty in waking the women. They were dazed at first, but as remembrance came back to them, they cried and sobbed in a hysterical manner. I told them that one life was bad enough to lose, and that if they delayed, they would sacrifice Miss Lucy. So, sobbing and crying, they went about their way, half-clad as they were, and prepared fire and water. 
They drew a warm bath, while Van Helsing and I carried Lucy out as she was and placed her in it. Whilst we were busy chafing her limbs, there was a knock at the hall door. One of the maids ran off. She returned and whispered to us that there was a gentleman who had come with a message from Mr. Homewood. I bade her simply tell him that he must wait, and I clean forgot all about him. I never saw in all my experience the professor work in such deadly earnest. It was a stand-up fight with death. If that were all, I would stop here where we are now and let her fade away into peace, for I see no light in life over her horizon. He went on with his work with, if possible, renewed and more frenzied vigor. Presently, we both began to be conscious that the heat was beginning to be of some effect. Lucy's heart beat a trifle more audibly to the stethoscope, and her lungs heard a perceptible movement, and Helsing's face almost beamed. The first gain is ours! <laughs> Check to the king! We took Lucy into another room, which had by now been prepared, and laid her in bed, and forced a few drops of brandy down her throat. I noticed that Van Helsing tied a soft silk handkerchief round her throat. She was still unconscious and was quite as bad as, if not worse, than we had ever seen her. What are we to do now? Where are we to turn for help? We must have another transfusion of blood, and that soon, or that poor girl's life won't be worth an hour's purchase. You are exhausted already. I am exhausted too. I fear to trust the servants, even if they would have the courage to submit. What are we to do for someone who will open his veins for her? What's the matter with me, anyhow? The voice came from doorway, and its tones brought relief and joy to my heart, for they were those of Quincy Morris. Van Helsing started angrily at the first sound, but his face softened, and a glad look came into his eyes as I rushed towards Quincy with outstretched hands. What brought you here? I guess art is the cause. He asked me to deliver this telegram. Have not heard from Seward for three days and am terribly anxious. Cannot leave. Father still in same condition. Send me word how Lucy is. Do not delay. I think I came in just the nick of time. You know, you only have to tell me what to do. The devil may work against us for all he's worth, but God sends us men when we want some. Once again, we went through that ghastly operation. I have not the heart to go through with the details. Lucy had got a terrible shock and it told on her more than before. For though plenty of blood went into her veins, her body did not respond to the treatment as well as on the other occasions. Her struggle back into life was something frightful to see and hear. Gradually, her faint became a profound slumber. I left Quincy lying down after having a glass of wine and told the cook to get ready a good breakfast. I went back to the room where Lucy now was. When I came softly in... I found Van Helsing with a sheet or two of notepaper in his hand. He had evidently read it, and was thinking it over as he sat with his hand to his brow. There was a look of grim satisfaction in his face, as of one who has had the doubt solved. He handed me the paper. Dropped from Lucy's breast, then we carried her to the bath. I read it. In God's name, what does it all mean? Was she or is she mad? Forget it for the present. You shall know and understand it all in good time. But it will be later. I sent a telegram for Arthur, telling him that Mrs. Westenra was dead, that Lucy also had been ill, but was now going on better, and that Van Helsing and I were with her. I arranged with the local undertaker to come up in the evening to measure for the coffin and to make arrangements. Jack Seward, 
I don't want to shove myself in anywhere where I have no right to be, but this is no ordinary case. You know I love that girl and wanted to marry her, but although that's all past and gone, I can't help feeling anxious about her all the same. What is it that's wrong with her? The Dutchman said that you must have another transfusion of blood and that both you and he were exhausted? I take it both you and Van Helsing had done already what I did today, and I guess Art was in it too. When I saw him four days ago down at his own place, he was talking about being tired of late. How long has this been going on? About ten days. Ten days? Then I guess, Jack Seward, that poor pretty creature that we all love has had put in her veins the blood of four strong men. Man alive! Her whole body wouldn't hold it. Then, coming close to me, he spoke in a fierce half-whisper. What took it out? That is the crux. Van Helsing is simply frantic about it, and I am at my wit's end. I cannot even hazard a guess. Here we stay until all be well or ill, for we cannot leave her alone. Count me in. When she woke late in the afternoon, Lucy's first movement was to feel in her breast, and to my surprise produced the paper which Van Helsing had given me to read. The careful professor had replaced it where it had come from, lest on waking she should be alarmed. Then she looked around the room, and seeing where she was, shuddered. She gave a loud cry and put her poor thin hands before her pale face. We both understood what that meant, that she had realized to the full her mother's death, so we tried what we could to comfort her. She was very low in thought and spirit and wept silently and weakly for a long time. Letter from Mina Harker to Miss Lucy Westenra, 18th September. My dearest Lucy, such a sad blow has befallen us. Mr. Hawkins has died very suddenly. It seems as though we had lost a father. I never knew either father or mother, so that dear old man's death is a real blow to me. Jonathan is greatly distressed. He feels sorrow, deep sorrow, for the dear good man who has befriended him all his life. But Jonathan feels it on another account. He says the amount of responsibility which it puts upon him makes him nervous. He begins to doubt himself. I try to cheer him up, and my belief in him helps him to have a belief in himself. But it is here that the grave shock that he experienced tells upon him the most. Oh, forgive me, dear, if I worry you with my troubles in the midst of your own happiness. But, Lucy, dear, I must tell someone, for the strain of keeping up a brave and cheerful appearance to Jonathan tries me, and I have no one here that I can confide in. We prepare for the funeral in London, and Jonathan will have to be chief mourner. I shall try to run over to see you, dearest, if only for a few minutes. Forgive me for troubling you. With all blessings... Your loving Mina Harker. 19th September. All last night she slept fitfully, being always afraid to sleep, and something weaker when she woke from it. The professor and I took it in turns to watch, and we never left her for a moment unattended. Quincy Morris, said nothing about his intention, but I knew that all night long he patrolled round and round the house. 
When the day came, its searching light showed the ravages in poor Lucy's strength. Both Van Helsing and I noticed the difference in her between sleeping and waking. Whilst asleep, she looked stronger, although more haggard, and her breathing was softer. Her open mouth showed the pale gums drawn back from the teeth, which thus looked positively longer and sharper than usual. When she woke, the softness of her eyes evidently changed the expression, for she looked her own self, although a dying one. In the afternoon, she asked for Arthur, and we telegraphed for him. Quincy went off to meet him at the station. When he arrived, it was nearly six o'clock, and the sun was setting full and warm, and the red light streamed in through the window and gave more colour to the pale cheeks. When he saw her, Arthur was simply choking with emotion, and none of us could speak. Arthur's presence seemed to act as a stimulant. She rallied a little and spoke to him more brightly than she had done since we arrived. He too pulled himself together and spoke as cheerily as he could. I fear that tomorrow will end our watching, for the shock has been too great. The poor child cannot rally. God help us all. Report from Patrick Hennessy, MD, MR, CS, etc., etc., to John Seward, MD, 20th September. My dear sir, in accordance with your wishes, I enclose report of the conditions with regard to patient Renfield. He has had another outbreak. This afternoon, a carrier's cart with two men made a call at the empty house whose grounds abut on ours, the house to which you will remember the patient twice ran away. As they passed the window of Renfield's room, the patient began to rate him from within and called him all the foul names he could lay his tongue to. I tried to get him to talk of the incident, but he led me to believe that he was completely oblivious of the affair. Within half an hour I heard of him again. This time he had broken out through the window of his room and was running down the avenue. I called to the attendants to follow him and ran after him. I saw the same cart which had passed before coming down the road, having on it some great wooden boxes. Before I could get up to him, the patient rushed at the workers and pulling one of them off the cart, began to knock his head against the ground. If I had not seized him just at that moment, I believe he would have killed the man there and then. I'll frustrate him. They shan't rob me. They shan't murder me by inches. I'll fight for my lord and master. It was with very considerable difficulty that the attendants got him back to the house and put him in the padded room. The two carriers were at first loud in their threats of actions for damages, but after a stiff glass of grog, and with each a sovereign in hand, they made light of the attack. Yours faithfully, Patrick Hennessy. Twentieth September. Only resolution and habit can let me make an entry tonight. I am too miserable, too low-spirited, too sick of the world and all in it, including life itself. I duly relieved Van Helsing and his watch over Lucy. We wanted Arthur to go to rest also, but he refused at first. Come, my child, come with me. You must not be alone, for to be alone is to be full of fears and alarms. Come to the drawing room. Where there is a big fire, and there are two sofas. You shall lie on one, and I on the other, and our sympathy will be comfort to each other, even though we do not speak. Arthur went off with him, casting back a longing look on Lucy's face. 
Lucy was breathing somewhat laboriously, and her face was at its worst. By some trick of the light, her canine teeth looked longer and sharper than the rest. I sat down by her, and presently she moved uneasily. At the same moment, there came a sort of dull flapping or buffeting at the window. I went over to it softly and peeped out by the corner of the blind. There was a full moonlight, and I could see that the noise was made by a great bat, which wheeled round, doubtless attracted by the light, although so dim, and every now and again struck the window with its wings. When I came back to my seat, I found that Lucy had moved slightly and had torn away the garlic flowers from her throat. I replaced them as well as I could and sat watching her. At six o'clock, Van Helsing came to relieve me. Van Helsing stood looking at her with his face at its sternest. She is dying. It will not be long now. It will be much different to mark me whether she dies conscious in her sleep. Take that poor boy and let him come and see the last. He trusts us. We have promised him. I went to the dining room and waked Arthur. I assured him that Lucy was still asleep, but told him as gently as I could that both Van Helsing and I feared the end was near. He covered his face with his hands and slid down on his knees by the sofa, with his head buried, praying, whilst his shoulders shook with grief. I took him by the hand and raised him up. Come, my dear old fellow, summon all your fortitude. It will be best and easiest for her. When we came into Lucy's room, I could see that Van Helsing had, with his usual forethought, been putting matters straight and making everything look as pleasing as possible. He'd even brushed Lucy's hair so that it lay on the pillow in its usual sunny ripples. When we came into the room, she opened her eyes. Arthur, oh my love, I'm so glad you have come. He was stooping to kiss her when Van Helsing motioned him back. No, not yet. Hold the hand. It will comfort her more. So Arthur took her hand and knelt beside her. And she looked her best, with all the soft lines matching the angelic beauty of her eyes. Then gradually her eyes closed and she sank to sleep. For a little bit her breast heaved softly, and her breath came and went like a tired child's. And then insensibly there came the strange change which I had noticed in the night. Her breathing grew laboured, The mouth opened, and the pale gums drawn back made the teeth look longer and sharper than ever. In a sort of sleep-waking, vague, unconscious way, she opened her eyes, which were now dull and hard at once, and said in a soft, voluptuous voice such as I had never heard from her lips, Arthur, oh my love, I am so glad you have come. Kiss me. Arthur bent eagerly over to kiss her, but at that instant Van Helsing, who, like me, had been startled by her voice, swooped upon him, and catching him by the neck with both hands, dragged him back with a fury of strength which I never thought he could have possessed, and actually hurled him almost across the room. Not for your life! Not for your living soul! And hers! Arthur was so taken aback that he did not for a moment know what to do or say. I kept my eyes fixed on Lucy, as did Van Helsing, and we saw a spasm as of rage flit like a shadow over her face. The sharp teeth chapped together. Then her eyes closed, and she breathed heavily. 
Very shortly after she opened her eyes in all their softness, and putting out her poor, pale, thin hand, took Van Helsing's great brown one, drawing it to her, she kissed it. My true friend. My true friend in his. Oh, God, him. And give me peace. I feel it. He knelt beside her and held up his hand as one who registers an oath. Then he turned to Arthur. Come, my child. Take a hand in yours. And kiss her on the forehead. And only once. Their eyes met instead of their lips. And so they parted. Lucy's eyes closed. Then her breathing became strenuous again. And all at once, it ceased. It is all over. She is dead. I took Arthur by the arm and led him away to the drawing room where he sat down and covered his face with his hands, sobbing in a way that nearly broke me down to see. I went back to the room and found Van Helsing looking at poor Lucy, and his face was sterner than ever. Some change had come over her body. Death had given back part of her beauty, for her brow and cheeks had recovered some of their flowing lines. Even the lips had lost their deadly pallor. It was as if the blood no longer needed for the working of the heart had gone to make the harshness of death as little rude as might be. There is peace for her at last. Not so. Alas, not so. It is only the beginning. What do you mean by that? We can do nothing as yet. Wait and see. The funeral was arranged for the next succeeding day, so that Lucy and her mother might be buried together. The undertaker remarked to me in a confidential manner coming out from the death chamber... She makes a very beautiful corpse, sir. It's quite a privilege to attend on her. It's not too much to say that she will do credit to our establishment. I noticed that Van Helsing never kept far away. There were no relatives at hand, and as Arthur had to be back the next day to attend at his father's funeral, we were unable to notify anyone who should have been bidden. He insisted upon looking over Lucy's papers himself. It's not well that her very thoughts go into the hands of strangers. When we had finished the work in hand, we went to look at poor Lucy. The undertaker had certainly done his work well, for the room was turned into a small chapel. There was a wilderness of beautiful white flowers, and death was made as little repulsive as might be. The end of the winding sheet was laid over the face, when the professor bent over and turned it gently back. We both started at the beauty before us. All Lucy's loveliness had come back to her in death, and the hours that had passed had but restored the beauty of life, so positively I could not believe my eyes that I was looking at a corpse. The professor looked sternly grave. He had not loved her as I had. There was no need for tears in his eyes. The forenoon was a dreary time. Arthur was expected at five o'clock. So a little before that time, we visited the death chamber. It was so in very truth, for now both mother and daughter lay in it. Van Helsing ordered the arrangement to be adhered to, explaining that, as Mr. Homewood, now he was Lord Godalming after the death of his father, was coming very soon, it would be less harrowing to his feelings to see all that was left of his fiancée quite alone. 
Poor fellow. He looked desperately sad and broken. Even his stalwart manhood seemed to have shrunk somewhat under the strain of his much-tried emotions. He had, I knew, been very genuinely and devotedly attached to his father, and to lose him, and at such a time, was a bitter blow to him. With me, he was as warm as ever. You loved her too, old fellow. She told me all about it, and there was no friend had a closer place in her heart than you. I don't know how to thank you for all you've done for her. I can't think yet. Here he suddenly broke down and threw his arms round my shoulders and laid his head on my breast. Oh, Jack! Jack! What shall I do? The whole of life seems gone from me all at once, and there is nothing in the wide world for me to live for. I comforted him as well as I could. Her grip of the hand, the tightening of an arm over the shoulder, a sob in unison are expressions of sympathy dear to a man's heart. Come and look at her. Together we moved over to the bed and I lifted the lawn from her face. God, how beautiful she was! Every hour seemed to be enhancing her loveliness. It frightened and amazed me somewhat, and as for Arthur, he fell a-trembling. Jack, is she really dead? I assured him, sadly, that it was so. That it often happened that after death faces became softened and even resolved into their youthful beauty. That this was especially so when death had been preceded by any acute or prolonged suffering. I told him that that must be goodbye, as the coffin had to be prepared. So he went back and took her dead hand in his, and kissed it, and bent over and kissed her forehead. I left him in the drawing room, and told Van Helsing that he had said goodbye. We all dined together, and I could see that poor Art was trying to make the best of things. Lord Gordelming? No, no, not that, for God's sake! Not at any rate! Forgive me, sir. I did not mean to speak offensively. It is only because my loss of my father is so recent. I must not call you Mr. Holmwood, and I have grown to love you. Yes, my dear boy, to love you as Arthur. Call me what you will. I hope I may always have the title of a friend. And let me say that I am at a loss for words to thank you for your goodness to my poor dear. I know it is hard for you to quite trust me. But the time will come when your trust shall be whole and complete in me, and when you shall understand as though the sunlight himself shone through. Then you shall bless me from the first to the last for your own sake, and for the sake of others, and for her dear sake, to whom I swore to protect. I know and believe you have a very noble heart, and you are Jack's friend, and you were hers. You know that Mrs. Westerner left you all her property? No, poor dear. I never thought of it. And as it is all yours, you have a right to deal with it as you will. I want you to give me permission to read all Miss Lucy's papers and letters. Believe me, it is no idle curiosity. I have a motive of which be sure she would have approved. Dr. Van Helsing, you may do what you will. There will be pain for us all. But it will not be all pain, nor will this pain be the last. We and you must pass through the bitter water before we reach the sweet. I slept on a sofa in Arthur's room that night. Van Helsing did not go to bed at all. 
He went to and fro as if patrolling the house and was never out of sight of the room where Lucy lay in her coffin, strewn with the wild garlic flowers, which sent through the odour of lily and rose a heavy overpowering smell into the night. Journal, 22nd September, in the train to Exeter. Jonathan sleeping. It seems only yesterday that the last entry was made, and yet how much between then, in Whitby, and all the world before me, Jonathan away and no news of him, and now, married to Jonathan, Jonathan a solicitor, a partner, rich, master of his business, Mr. Hawkins, dead and buried, and Jonathan with another attack that may harm him. Some day he may ask me about it. Down it all goes. I am rusty in my shorthand. See what unexpected prosperity does for us. So it may be as well to freshen it up again with an exercise anyhow. The London service was very simple and very solemn. There were only ourselves and the servants there. Jonathan and I stood hand in hand, and we felt that our best and dearest friend was gone from us. Afterward, we walked down Piccadilly. Jonathan was holding me by the arm, the way he used to in old days before I went to school. I felt it very improper, for you can't go on some years teaching etiquette and decorum to other girls without the pedantry of it biting into yourself a bit. But it was Jonathan, and he was my husband, and so on we walked. I was looking at a very beautiful girl in a big cartwheel hat, when I felt Jonathan clutch my arm so tight that he hurt me, I turned to him quickly and asked him what it was that disturbed him. He was very pale, and his eyes seemed bulging out as, half in terror and half in amazement, he gazed at a tall, thin man with a beaky nose and black moustache and pointed beard who was also observing the pretty girl. The man was looking at her so hard that he did not see either of us, and so I had a good view of him. His face was not a good face. It was hard and cruel and sensual, and his big white teeth, that looked all the whiter because his lips were so red, were pointed like an animal's. I asked Jonathan why he was so disturbed. Do you see who it is? No, dear, I don't know him. Who is it? It is the man himself. The poor dear was evidently terrified at something. I do believe that if he had not had me to lean on and to support him, he would have sunk down. He kept staring. I believe it is the Count, but he has grown young. Oh, my God. My God. If I only knew. If I only knew. I feared to keep his mind on the subject by asking him any questions, so I remained silent. I drew him away quietly, and he holding my arm came easily. We walked a little further and then went in and sat for a while in the green park. After a few minutes, staring at nothing, Jonathan's eyes closed. Why, Mina, have I been asleep? Oh, do forgive me for being so rude. He had evidently forgotten all about the dark stranger, as in his illness he had forgotten all that this episode had reminded him of. I don't like this lapsing into forgetfulness, it may make or continue some injury to the brain. I must somehow learn the facts of his journey abroad. 
The time is come, I fear, when I must open that parcel and know what is written. Oh, Jonathan, you will, I know, forgive me if I do wrong, but it is for your own dear sake. Later, a sad homecoming to Exeter in every way, the house empty of the dear soul who was so good to us, and now a telegram from a Mr. Van Helsing, whoever he may be. You will be grieved to hear that Mrs. Vestroner died five days ago, and that Lucy died the day before yesterday. They were both buried today. Oh, what a wealth of sorrow in a few words. Poor Mrs. Westenra. Poor Lucy. Gone. Gone never to return to us. And poor, poor Arthur to have lost such sweetness out of his life. God help us all to bear our troubles. 22nd September. It is all over. Arthur has gone back home and has taken Quincy Morris with him. What a fine fellow is Quincy. I believe in my heart of hearts that he suffered as much about Lucy's death as any of us. If America can go on breeding men like that, she will be a power in the world indeed. When the funeral was all over, we were standing beside Arthur, who, poor fellow, was speaking of his part in the operation where his blood had been transfused to his Lucy's veins. I could see Van Helsing's face grow white and purple by turns. Arthur was saying that he felt since as if they too had been really married, and that she was his wife in the sight of God. None of us said a word about the other operations, and none of us ever shall. The moment we were alone in the carriage, Van Helsing gave way to a regular fit of hysterics. He has denied to me since that it was hysterics and insisted that it was only his sense of humour asserting itself under very terrible conditions. He laughed till he cried, and I had to draw down the blinds lest anyone should see us and misjudge. And then he cried till he laughed again, and laughed and cried together. <laughs> you, you don't comprehend, friend John. <laughs> do, do, do not think that I am not sad, though I laugh. Behold, in example, I grieve in my heart for that so sweet young girl. I give my blood for her, so I am old and fawn. I give my time, my skill, my sleep. I let other sufferers want so that she may have all, and yet I can laugh at her very grave. Laugh when the clay from the spade of the sexton drop upon her coffin and say, that, that to my heart. Oh, friend John, it is a strange world, a sad world, a world full of miseries and woes and troubles. The tears come, and, like the rain on the ropes, they brace us up, and we break. What about the burial service was comic. Poor Art spoke as if his heart was simply breaking. Just so, said he not that the transfusion of his blood to her veins had made her truly his bride? Yes, and it was a sweet and comforting idea for him. So that? Then what about the others? 
then this so sweet maid is a polyandrist? And me, with my poor wife dead to me, but alive by church's law? I, who am faithful husband to my now dead wife, am bigamist. <laughs> he laughed some more and I shook my head. And now we are all scattered. Lucy lies in the tomb of her kin, a lordly death house in a lonely churchyard away from teeming London, where the air is fresh and the sun rises over Hampstead Hill. So I can finish this diary, and God only knows if I shall ever begin another. If I do, or if I even open this again, it will be to deal with different people and different themes. For here, at the end, where the romance of my life is told, ere I go back to take up the thread of my life work, I say sadly and without hope, Finis. Journal, 23rd September. Jonathan is better after a bad night. I am so glad that he has plenty of work to do, for that keeps his mind off the terrible things. He will be away all day till late, for he said he could not lunch at home. My household work is done, so I shall take his foreign journal and lock myself up in my room and read it. Twenty-fourth September. I hadn't the heart to write last night. That terrible record of Jonathan's upset me so. How he must have suffered. Whether it be true or only imagination. I wonder if there is any truth in it at all. Did he get his brain fever and then write all those terrible things? Or had he some cause for it all? And yet that man we saw yesterday, he seemed quite certain of him. I suppose it was the funeral upset him and set his mind back on some train of thought. If it should be that the fearful Count came to London, I shall be prepared. I shall get my typewriter this very hour and begin transcribing. If I am ready, poor Jonathan may not be upset, for I can speak for him and never let him be troubled or worried with it at all. Letter from Van Helsing to Mrs. Harker, 24th September, in confidence. Dear Madam, I pray you pardon my writing to you the sad news of Miss Lucy Vesterner's death. By the kindness of Lord Gottleming, I am empowered to read her letters and papers, for I am deeply concerned about certain matters vitally important. In them, I find some letters from you which show how great friends you were and how you love her. Oh, Madam Mina, by that love I implore you, help me. It is for others' good that I ask, to lift much and terrible troubles that may be more great than you can know. May it be that I see you. I am friend of Dr. John Seward and of Lord Gottleming, that was Arthur of 
Miss Lucy, I should come to Exeter to see you at once if you tell me I am privileged to come. Van Helsing. Dracula, the radio play miniseries. Episode 5, cast. Kenneth Sergianko as Dr. Seward. Robert Harrower as Van Helsing. Heather Smith as Mina. Duncan Cairns as Quincy, Arthur, Dr. Patrick Hennessy, Renfield, Hawkins, Undertaker. Tina Aurora as Lucy. Anir Malik Noor as Jonathan Harker. Directed and edited by Robin Sadaboy and produced by Alex Ragozino for the Oakville Players. For information about Creative Commons licensed music used in this episode, see the episode description. Sound effects from Pixabay and freesound.org. <laughs>